Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just realised I put on my glasses in order to talk about Cambridge. Um, we are phenomenally proud of our relationship with Cambridge University, who commit to sending us their most brilliant minds to engage with matters of the day with true authority and great expertise. This is never more true than uh, with our guest this evening, who is a senior fellow in the Institute of Astronomy there. He is a prolific author. Um, he has uh, got many books in the bookshop, including this beautiful new one, Discovering the Universe. He has the great ability to show us what, at no time in human history, have we ever really been able to see. We've been able to imagine it, but even in our wildest dreamings, we could never really appreciate how truly beautiful the universe is. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Paul Murden. Thank you, thank you very much, and thank you for coming here this evening. I got the idea of, uh, for this book um, on uh, the scenery on other planets when I was traveling with my wife, Leslie, um, in the United States, in New Mexico and Arizona, visiting the national parks there. The national parks were originally set up um, it, it, to preserve wilderness, and so it, the, uh, the parks encompass some of the wildest, most pristine, most beautiful um, natural scenery in the United States, and that's, that's a high accolade. And uh, some of those uh, landscapes reminded me of pictures that I had seen of, um, on, on other planets, the pictures that had appeared in the astronomical literature, um, pictures taken by planetary scientists in order to show the geology and the geography of the planets, um, but which seemed to me to be spectacularly beautiful, and also works of art in their, in their own right. And so I started to collect pictures that were in a way about space tourism. Of course, there's only one planet, uh, one world, um, that mankind has set foot on, namely the moon with the Apollo landings. But by proxy means, by sending cameras and landers and little rovers, little, um, little devices with uh, wheels that can travel around on the surfaces of, of planets. Uh, we've been able to visit um, other, other worlds in, in principle, for, by virtual means. And so it's possible for us to be in a position like this, um, uh, like this alpinist on the, on the left, um, standing on the top of a, of a mountain um, in this picture by Caspar David Friedrich, looking across the vista of mountains in front of him, it's possible for us to experience something like that um, on the planet Mars. And here on the, on the right-hand side, you see in the foreground there the, the superstructure of, um, of one of these little roving spacecraft, which I talked about, looking across um, a, a crater on the planet Mars and looking at a, um, a planetary vista, a planetary landscape. And so what I want to do today is to talk to you about uh, the, the landscapes that we see on, um, on other planets and the scenery that's there. And uh, that 
those two words, landscape and scenery, both encompass uh, the natural phenomenon of the, of the, of the real thing that's, that's in front of you when you go visiting somewhere, but also they encompass, an, they have an artistic meaning as well. In fact, for both of those words, the, the, the artistic meaning came before the science, before the reality. Um, and um, uh, although planetary scientists would say, I think that the science comes first, the, uh, the art in the pictures that they produce is not far behind. So the word landscape uh, as a picture, meaning a, some depicting um, uh, the, the terrain in front of the artist, is a, is a, um, is a term from the late 16th century. Um, and it's later that it, um, it, that it, become, that it has, takes up the meaning of, of, the, um, of, the, of the expanse of scenery that you can see. Uh, the word scenery is even older than that. It uh, harks back to classical Greece. And, and it, it derives uh, from the word meaning a tent or some other temporary structure off to the side of an Athenian stage where an actor might go um, uh, uh, to be out of sight when he was uh, changing a mask or a costume. And then it was made into a permanent structure in the theatre and became part of the play. Maybe the king stood on it to address the the subjects or the night watchman could see the approaching army, whatever the story of the play was, and then eventually became something that was, whose sides were painted in order to represent the, the place where the, um, where, the, where the action took place. And it's much later in the, in, in the 18th century where it, where it comes to mean views of natural features. So these artistic and natural meanings of landscape and scenery remain entangled, and I'm going to exploit that entanglement um, during my talk. Now, when, uh, when planetary scientists obtain pictures of um, uh, other worlds, it is seldom that they send uh, a camera uh, with film in it. Uh, they do sometimes, but um, uh, it's seldom that they send a camera with film in it that, that simply takes a picture in the way that you would take a picture if you were a tourist in a foreign country, holding it up to your eye and snapping what it is you see. Uh, very often, uh, the, uh, the planetary scientists receive uh, the elements of the picture, different um, scientific manifestations of the picture, and they have to stitch it all together. And in doing that, they, um, uh, they use some judgment. Um, and that judgment uh, then creates the picture that, um, uh, that uh, they present to the world. They go to a conference, they present... Um, some story about uh, the geology and the geography that, that, that's in front of them. And in order to explain that and illustrate it, they, they, show the, they show the pictures. And that imagination that has to go into the creation of the picture that they're going to talk about, the object in the scenery that they're going to talk about, is an imagination that has a, a long history behind it. In, the, um, in, in, in medieval times, in early European um, uh, uh, painting, um, uh, landscapes were painted that, painted that were wholly imaginary, co out, completely out of the artist's imagination. They, they formed a background to the main interest of some um, um, classical or religious incident in the foreground, um, but, the, um, but the background was imagined, and, and this is a, 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 an example which is, um, which is in the National Gallery, uh, often called the, uh, uh, by a, a man who's often called the first European landscape painter. The, uh, the terrain is not only imaginary, I mean, it's very busy. It contains absolutely everything from distant mountains and estuary, rocks in the foreground, pastoral land and forests and so on. 
But the, um, uh, the scale, the vertical scale, is exaggerated. You can see those rocks on the left-hand um, the left side there, uh, how precipitous they are. They're, they're much more precipitous than you, would, um, than you would actually get. And the viewpoint that's been, um, that's been uh, selected for this, for this picture is um, probably impossible, unless the, unless the artist, artist is standing on a, on a very steep hillside with his, with his back to the top of the, top of the mountain. Um, he's got this high, unnatural viewpoint which is, of course, intended so that to display the, uh, the scenery and the landscape um, uh, the better in front of him. If he, if he was too low, he'd, he'd only see the, the nearer features. And those kind of um, uh, effects um, still exist in the way in which planetary scientists have the, the freedom to construct their landscapes. Real terrestrial landscapes are straightforward representations um, uh, by uh, t what it, uh, in the early days were called topographic painters, people who uh, carried their easel and their canvases to places in order to get a good view of something and then painted what was there in front of them. It was a r relatively uh, late development. And, of course, in photography, these magnificent landscapes by Ansel Adams uh, uh, in the American um, uh, parks um, are uh, true representations of what, are, of what are there. I say true, but landscape is not black and white and landscape doesn't have those tonal contrasts. So there's imagination and artistry and artifact gone into um, even real terrestrial photographic landscapes. Now, so far as the landscapes of the other planets go, um, uh, the, uh, it, it was impossible to even discuss the question about what landscapes you would see on other planets before we had the idea that the other planets were indeed planets, uh, up until the time that people realized that those wandering points of light in the sky were worlds like ours. It just wasn't, didn't, the question about what their surfaces were like didn't, didn't make any sense. Uh, but after Copernicus had shown that the Earth was a planet and therefore the other planets were planets in the same way that the Earth was, worlds like the Earth, that question became something which we could, um, uh, could discuss and could think about. But of course, couldn't see. Uh, even through telescopes, um, uh, uh, even through telescopes, all you could see would be uh, dark patches and stains on the surfaces of the planets, and you had to imagine what might be there. And the imagined landscapes um, uh, became uh, created, uh, were, were the, the imagined landscapes had some grounding in reality um, uh, only in the case of the, the moon where we could actually see the surface. In 1610, Galileo uh, sent, uh, used his telescope to, uh, to, uh, to image the moon and his great one of his great discoveries in 1610 was to prove that the moon was a world like the Earth, that it had mountains and it had flat areas he thought they were uh, expanses of water, but we know they're now dusty plains. Um, and he imagined in his book, where he wrote about the landscapes, the surface of the moon, he imagined that um, these, these landscapes were, were, as it were, terrestrial. Um, he talked about um, uh, what he called a cavity, which we would now call a lunar crater, uh, having the appearance of a tract of land like Bohemia, uh, surrounded by, uh, by high mountains. So uh, the planetary images that I'm going to show in this talk are all, all real, 
they're all landscapes as it really is, but the reality is certainly communicated artistically. The, the artist in The Scientist chooses the subject, he frames it, uh, just like a painter does. Um, uh, it may be that the pictures are taken with a camera just straightforwardly, um, and the scene is something you would regard as realistic, but in fact the colours and so on in the, in the camera are more vibrant um, than in real life, um, and he may take pictures in black and white, as, a, as Ansel Adams does. There's even more latitude in, uh, in uh, thinking about the colours or creating different effects of colours um, if you take uh, scientific programmes which are made up by layering monochrome uh, pictures one on top of the other. And finally, some of the pictures that I'm going to show are scientific representations of data, things like um, contour maps uh, that have been made into pictures. The pictures are real, the data is real, the landscapes are real, it's just that they're not constructed in the, in, in the normal way, they're constructed in computers. So this is the first planetary landscape uh, that, I, uh, that I know of. Um, I have to say this doesn't have much artistic impact. Um, it's 50 years old. In order to give it a bit more artistic impact, the astronomers who have created the picture have coloured it brown, so it looks kind of sepia or earthy. Um, it's a picture which was taken by the Russian spacecraft Luna 9, which landed on the moon in 1966. Um, they landed in a very uninteresting area of the moon, one of the flat areas. They did that deliberately because uh, they weren't sure about where exactly where the spacecraft would land. They didn't want it to land among mountains and hills. Uh, one foot might be higher than the other and it might then fall over. End of experiment. Um, uh, it did, in fact, land with one foot in a hole on the moon, which is why it's, um, why it's tilted over, why the horizon is... Um, it cuts across, cuts across the corner here. And what you see is um, a, a sort of a dusty, rocky landscape that's very typical of the, of the, of the surface of, of many, many of the planets. This is the first planetary landscape with any kind of artistic impact, which is also 50 years old this year. This was taken by a low-flying spacecraft called uh, the Lunar Orbiter, an American spacecraft, which was carry out, carrying out reconnaissance of the um, possible sites where the Apollo, spa Apollo spacecraft might, uh, might go. It had a short list of possible candidate sites, um, and it um, toured the moon round and round and round, taking pictures of these sites in order to uh, be able to brief the astronauts and in order to be, for the spacecraft controllers to be able to control the landing to the best of, uh, to the best of their ability. The picture was shown unannounced at a conference in the United States, and it caused an utter sensation. It, it, it halted the con conference while people uh, gasped at it and discussed it. Um, and um, uh, the, uh, the, the very first reports that came from the conf conference talked about it in terms of the grandeur of the, the Grand Canyon or the, um, uh, the desolation of the Badlands in, in, in the USA. Time magazine, as not a magazine which understates what it has to say, um, called it one of the great uh, pictures of the century, but so also did the London Times, which in those days was a broadsheet with advertisements on the front and didn't exaggerate anything. Um, so I think we can reckon on it being um, a, a landscape with artistic, artistic impact. Uh, this is a very famous um, uh, picture of a landscape with uh, human impact. It's called Earthrise over the, uh, over the moon. 
Um, it was a photograph which was taken by uh, the astronauts of the Apollo 8 um, spacecraft as they went round the back of the moon and came round the back and heading back home, as it were, um, uh, across the surface of the, of, the, of, the, of the moon. It's called Earthrise. That's a, not a scientific term. The moon keeps the same face towards the Earth. So if you stand on the moon, the, um, uh, the Earth is always in the same direction. It doesn't rise or set in the way that the sun does. But if you're traveling in a spacecraft across the moon, approaching where the moon is, then uh, approaching where the Earth is, then the Earth uh, does appear to rise. And so, uh, so the picture has become known as Earthrise. And the, uh, the artistic impact, the emotional impact of this uh, picture uh, was uh, very large. Um, it became um, an, an iconic photograph of the, of the ecological movements of the, of the 1960s and 70s uh, because it emphasizes our finite world, um, our isolation in the universe, and the implied care with which we should, um, look, with which we should look after our own planet. The, um, uh, the, 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 with very few exceptions, uh, the pictures which I'm, uh, and certainly most of, the, I think all of the rest of the pictures of planets that I'm going to show from here, um, ha have no human presence on, or very little human presence, except for those uh, those uh, uh, taken from the taken on the moon. Um, but the, uh, the the romance of human presence on the moon is, uh, is typified by uh, pictures of the imprint of uh, Buzz Aldrin's boot in the lunar dust as he trod on the surface. And now the, um, uh, the tracks of these roving spacecraft as they travel across the surface of Mars. Very reminiscent of the, um, of the, of the tracks that were left by um, our hominid ancestors three and a half million years ago on the, on the lava in, um, in Lytoli. Um, uh, pictures with the same kind of uh, the same kind of meaning, that although you're looking at inanimate landscape, you're actually sensing the presence of uh, human beings. This is uh, uh, the uh, the first um, uh, site landing site on the moon, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the the area where Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin um, landed uh, with Apollo 11 in 1969. Their words were that the, um, uh, that the desolation that they could see around them was magnificent, but it was desolation. It was an almost featureless, empty landscape because the landing site was conservatively chosen, as indeed that picture of Luna 9. But one of the things that uh, straight away the astronauts uh, realized and commented on uh, was how difficult it was to judge uh, distances um, in the... Um, in, in, on, uh, on the lunar surface. Uh, Neil Armstrong says that um, uh, there is a hill, it's uh, the, the slight irregularities in the, in the horizon here, which are the, uh, the walls of a, of a complex of, of craters called the Cat's Paw. So these are the Cat's Paw hills. Um, there were hills um, in, in a way. He said they were difficult to estimate how far away they were. They might be maybe half a mile or a mile. In fact, they were five miles away. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, the reason for that, of course, is, is, the, is that there are no distance clues. There is no, no trees, no phone boxes, no, no, nothing, no human beings. There's nothing you know the size of to enable you to judge how far away the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the hills are. 
and there are no atmospheric features. There's no atmosphere on the moon, so there's no atmospheric features. So you can't use atmospheric attenuation as a means of ju judging distances. On, on, the, um, on, the, on, on the Earth, uh, uh, if you uh, look at mountains that are five to 10 kilometers away, you see them layered in terms of uh, different lighter and lighter tones of gray because of the uh, aerosols, the, uh, the particles, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the water droplets that are in the, in, in the atmosphere. On the moon, no atmosphere, no water droplets, no aerosols, no dust kicked up. And so that distance clue is completely taken away from you. And those hills in the, in the lower panorama uh, behind uh, the Apollo 15 spacecraft are, um, are about four kilometers away, as far as those mountains on the other side of, the, uh, of this lake in, um, in Switzerland. <coughs> Incidentally, you can see the, um, uh, the Apollo 15 spacecraft tilted over on that uh, slope with its foot down uh, lower in the, in, the, in the nearby crater. It's one degree off the critical angle at which it would uh, be impossible for the Apollo 15 astronauts to take off again and come back home. They were within one degree of staying on the moon for a long time. They would still be there now um, if, uh, if it had gone any further. And it's, only, um, it, it, it's really only when you get some, uh, something that you know uh, the scale of, or can guess the scale of, um, that you can get an idea of the, of the amazing scale of the, of the lunar landscape. This little feature here is the... Um, is the Apollo 15 landing module. I mean, think of it as something the size of a shed, and then that tells you uh, the scale of these, um, uh, of these, uh, of these hills and, um, and craters that surround it. Another feature of, uh, of um, uh, extraterrestrial um, uh, landscapes, which is um, sort of echoed on the Earth, but which, um, uh, which uh, is, is different, is the way in which uh, shadows are colored. If, you if you're on Earth and standing in the shadow of um, some, um, some hillside somewhere, then um, there's no direct sunlight falling on you, but you are illuminated by uh, the, the blue sky above you. And so shadows um, on, the, on the Earth are blue. Um, uh, if you are standing on, a, on, on the moon and uh, in the shadow of a rock, then uh, the sky up above you is, uh, is, is the black night sky and the shadows are jet black. And then on Mars, the sky is, um, is an orange color, and the shadows are, are orange. And here's some proof. Two lunar landscapes, two, sorry, two extraplanetary, land, two planetary landscapes, and one landscape um, on Earth, um, a painting by Monet, that has the, uh, uh, the blueness in the shadows of the, uh, of the haystacks. But the shadows in the, on the moon are completely jet black, and the shadows on, um, on, on Mars are, are yellow, orange. The, um, uh, the, the, uh, the planetary scientists who take the, take the pictures, are, are, as I said, are interested in the science. They're interested in the geology or the, um, or the geography of uh, what it is they have to see. And since they have freedom over, in, in many ways, in choosing the colors of the pictures that they show, uh, they can bring out color differences. So on Mars, uh, there are minerals which are red, sandstony, um, and there are minerals which are less red. 
And if you have uh, areas of a photograph which are less red, you can um, uh, adjust the color contrast uh, to make those areas blue. So uh, this landscape here, this cliff face, uh, it's the edge of a, um, the edge of a crater, um, has been, uh, if you like, doctored or artistically interpreted in, the, in that way and shows the, uh, the, the blue minerals, the less red minerals, um, strewn on the landscape um, uh, around on the, f on the flatter areas. Those, um, th those, uh, that blue colour comes from um, these uh, geological bits and pieces uh, whose nickname is blueberries. Um, uh, they're they're uh, the size of rabbit droppings, blueberries, I guess. Um, uh, and they're, um, uh, they're, they're made blue by the photographic process, by the colour making, by the picture making process. Uh, they're a form of mineral called, um, called uh, hematite, which is, uh, which is less uh, red than that uh, sandstony sort of mineral uh, that is uh, there on the cliff face. And these uh, little, little spherical particles are blown around by the enormous winds that there are on Mars. Mars. 200 kilometer, wind, kilometer an hour winds are, are a very frequent occurrence on the, on the surface of Mars. And, um, uh, and the, uh, the little uh, particles are blown about and accumulate on, in, on the, the, the flat areas. Here's um, a more naturalistic uh, coloured uh, view of the same scene, these, um, this, these cliff faces. Um, and uh, they, uh, they, 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 the, the geologists like to go to these places because they, they lay out the geology, geological history of the, of, of the, of the planet. Um, in, in, in front of us. Those rocks are layered, the sed sedimentary rocks, in uh, much the same way that uh, the, uh, the chalk cliffs around, um, uh, around the, 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 uh, the, the coast of Kent are layered. These rocks are laid down um, uh, in water by, um, by material sifting down through the sea and, uh, and dropping on the seabed. Um, uh, now the question, the, the question arises as to why, the, why these uh, rocks are laid out in, in layers. Is it because uh, uh, this was the, uh, uh, under, underwater at some time, or is it because uh, the wind has blown uh, the, the sand on Mars into, into layers, and then these layers have been compacted into, into blocks? Uh, for this rock face, I think we don't know. But for this rock face, um, which is inside the Eagle Crater, uh, these, are, this, these layers are uh, maybe uh, five meters from top to bottom, and the, and the cliff face is, I don't know, maybe ten meters distant. It was possible uh, for the spacecraft that took this, these pictures uh, to approach the rocks, to drill out samples, and to analyze the material. And it turns out that this material is deposited underwater. Um, although Mars is now a dry and dusty desert um, with um, uh, almost no water there, no. No, no standing water in the way that we would understand lakes or seas. Um, uh, it did at one time have abundant water, um, and, and this water all disappeared about three and a half billion years ago in some global climatic catastrophe in which the climate of Mars altered absolutely completely. The, um, the aesthetic of the desolation and the cliff faces and the bare rocks which are, um, which, are, uh, um, uh, which are present on Mars is, is shown in, the, in the, this pair of, of pictures. This one here on, on, on the right is, um, 
is a scene on Mars um, called the, uh, the Valles Marineris, a, gr a great big canyon system that, um, uh, that stretches across a substantial fraction of the, of the surface of Mars. Imagine something like the Grand Canyon. Imagine that instead of cutting across the top of one state, Arizona, it cuts across the whole of the western half of the United States from the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi Valley. Imagine that um, uh, it's five or ten times as deep and as broad as the Grand Canyon is, and that will give you some idea of, of, the, of the size of that uh, canyon system and the, and the size of the uh, cliffs that we're looking at there. There is, of course, no vegetation at all, and it's always a distinctive feature of planetary landscapes that the landscape is not shaped, it's not influenced in any way by vegetation or life. But that in itself doesn't disqualify it as um, a landscape. This uh, picture on the left is, um, is a landscape by Georgia O'Keeffe. Uh, she's, um, uh, she's known best for her erotic pictures of, um, of flowers. Um, uh, uh, she, uh, she worked on those and invented that genre of a painting uh, when she lived in New York with her husband. Her husband maltreated her um, and she left him uh, behind in Manhattan and, um, and uh, set up her studio in the north of New Mexico, near, near the uh, city of Santa Fe. And she did that because she was attracted by the desert landscape and went out uh, uh, painting it and, um, and producing these barren landscapes, which, though barren, um, have an aesthetic beauty um, that I th think might well have been in the mind of the planetary scientists who made, um, who made this picture. Some of the planetary scientists actually do go out of their way to, to imitate art. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the Opportunity rover on Mars is operated by uh, scientists at Cornell University. And uh, it's led by um, a planetary scientist called Jim Bell, who, um, as, a, as a young man, um, uh, had a hobby which he indulged in more often than he, than he does now, but still continues it on to a certain degree, in landscape photography. Um, and he deliberately sets out, when he is planning taking pictures with the Opportunity rover, he deliberately sets out to compose the pictures in an artistic way. And he's hired people onto his team that have um, uh, experience and knowledge of the history of art, uh, one of whom um, uh, made these, uh, these pictures of the, uh, this, this, this uh, uh, picture on the, on, on the left of the, of the sand dunes on Mars, stretching the colours in the same way that I described to, to show the, the blueberries. And she's done this, um, uh, the, 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 the woman who, who, who did it, who's in charge of the archive of pictures uh, 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 made by the Opportunity rover, has, has done it in such a way, deliberately, as to echo a quantalist, um, a quantalist style of painting like this one um, uh, by Georges Lemont. Um, uh, now, those pictures are all taken with, um, uh, with uh, colour equipment of one sort or another, um, uh, uh, but it's possible to take monochrome pictures and do something with them that uh, creates more of an artistic impression by simply tinting them. I showed you the tinted, the sepia-tinted photograph of, of the moon earlier on. And basically, you, you take a monochrome picture in some way, 
and use picture processing software to tint it. Um, the colours can be completely arbitrary, but you can restrict the choices that you make according to some scientific criteria. Uh, this is an example of a picture which has been uh, created in, the, in this way. This is um, a landscape on the planet Venus. Uh, the planet Venus is uh, covered with a, a, a cloudy sky that's completely opaque to, um, uh, to, ordin to ordinary light. And so the surface of Venus has never been seen from afar. It's, it has been seen by um, a, a small number of Russian spacecraft called the Venera spacecraft that have landed on Venus. Um, here's the, uh, uh, the, the, the footprint and some of the scientific apparatus from uh, the, the Venera 14 spacecraft. It's a very hostile, um, very hostile uh, 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 region of the universe. Uh, the, um, uh, the clouds contain sulfur compounds, which means that it rains sulfuric acid. So it's very bad news for scientific equipment. Um, and, um, uh, and these uh, spacecraft uh, only, only operated for, a, for about an hour at a time, hour each. Um, in, in total. So, and uh, you can see that the, the landscape is very, uh, very, um, very, uh, very rocky, and these scaly volcanic rock that cover the surface means that landing these spacecraft is very hazardous. And since there are no maps um, at the time the, the spacecraft landed, there were no maps of the surface. It was just potluck where they landed. And um, uh, 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 it, it it was often the case that the spacecraft fell over and then, uh, and then didn't operate at all. But this, uh, this picture, which is uh, originally taken in black and white and which shows the, the, um, uh, the scaly rocks and then a, a gap in the nearby hills with um, more distant hills uh, with that layering of visibility um, that's, that, make, that enables you to judge the relative distance of hills um, to hills in the background. The, um, uh, this has been coloured, the black and white picture has been coloured by, um, uh, by Don Mitchell um, uh, as a, with a cloudy golden yellow, which is actually scientifically matched to the, uh, to the measurements that there, that there were of the, of, the, of, of the light emission from the atmosphere and the sort of, sort of evidence that supports what I just said, that... Um, that the, uh, that the atmosphere contains sulfur com compounds. Here's a more recent example of the similar sort of thing. This is, um, this is the surface of one of Saturn's uh, satellites. It's the largest satellite in the solar system. It's called Titan. Uh, this is the only picture that exists of the surface of Titan. It was made in 2005 by um, a landing spacecraft called Huygens, which parachuted down through an opaque atmosphere and landed um, on, on, the surface of, on the surface of Titan. Um, uh, fortunately, it landed um, in a relatively flat area. Um, uh, this is, in fact, a, the lake bed. It's a, a dry lake bed. There are, there are lakes on Titan, um, but there are also very strong seasons, and so the lakes dry out periodically and then come back again. And uh, the Huygens lander landed on, um, uh, on this lake bed soon after the, um, uh, the liquid in the lake had, uh, had, had drained away and um, evaporated um, to the other hemisphere of, of Titan. These, uh, these boulders, which are in the foreground, which are roughly 50 centimetres in dimension, 
are boulders of water ice, ice flows, if you like. The estuary that the Huygens lander has landed in um, uh, drains down from hills, which are behind us in this picture, um, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the scene is almost prosaically banal. It's almost something that you could see um, pretty much any day on the earth, except for the absence of vegetation. With the, with the, with the utter, uh, utterly astonishing difference that the liquid that's in the lake, the liquid that drains down from the hills behind, the liquid that runs in the streams that created this estuary, are liquid methane. Uh, Saturn's a long way away from the sun, it's very cold, and the atmosphere is, um, is, is, is methane. So uh, this is, um, uh, this is a, uh, a landscape which is very familiar in the way it's made up, but utterly strange in the geological processes that have created, created it. This is, uh, this, is the, this is the lake, this is a, a, a radar view, a view by radar down on, onto the surface, and this is the, this is the lake. Um, and the, the, the lander is, I don't, don't know exactly where it, uh, where it landed, but um, possibly in, in uh, the estuary of a, of a river like this. This is a river which is uh, four, 400 kilometers long, and the, uh, the methane rain rains on these hills, drains down in, in, into the lake um, uh, once, every, uh, once every titanic year. Um, uh, there are some exciting landscapes yet to come from um, artistic landscapes yet to come from Titan. Um, here's a hint of one uh, made by the Cassini spacecraft in orbit around Saturn, looking out towards um, Saturn satellites in 2012. This bright spot is the uh, reflection of the, of the sun on the surface of one of those lakes, the glint of the sun on those lakes. And we can look forward at some point to seeing seascapes from, uh, from Titan uh, with the, the sun reflected in the water as, in, um, as, as we're familiar, as is a familiar phenomenon on Earth. I mentioned that um, uh, it's possible to make landscapes from a computer file. Um, you can produce a file of data uh, representing the, um, uh, the, the heights of the, of, the, of the surface above a, a, some datum level or, or something by means of radar or by means of a stereo camera. And then you can tint the, uh, the surface, possibly with constructed colors, as in the case of, a, of, a, of an ordnance survey contour map, or um, just, put a, um, just put a color on it. Or you can overlay the map with a, with a, color, a real color picture. And then construct landscapes by choosing a viewpoint in the computer um, and radiating out lines of sight from that viewpoint until they meet the surface, and then constructing the uh, picture that they would see. And here's um, an example of, uh, of that kind of technique. This is the planet Venus again. Um, this is a, a radar landscape of a volcano on, uh, on Venus. Um, it's a, a shield volcano. You can see the rivers of lava that have come down from it. The sky is black because radar doesn't see sky. Um, and the, uh, the scientists who have, um, have made the picture have made the, have made the vertical, they've stretched the vertical scale in the same way that that uh, landscape artist uh, did, uh, um, that I showed a picture of uh, right at the very beginning. 
that's greatly exaggerated the, uh, the, the relative heights of the mountains. Um, uh, but, of course, the, the underlying structure of the, of, of the picture is never the, nevertheless real. To make it look a bit more real, they've coloured it, and they've simply coloured it with an orange colour, and they just imagined what the orange colour might look like. There was no scientific analysis went into that. And I don't mean to imply any disrespect to what they did. Uh, they weren't trying to make a realistic colour picture of Venus. They were trying to show us what the, what the, what the mountains and the geology looked like and did amazingly well at that. Here's um, uh, uh, a, um, uh, a pair of landscapes. On the left, um, a 16th century landscape showing the same um, uh, features of landscapes that, um, that, I, uh, that, I, uh, that I mentioned in the, um, in the medieval landscape of St. Jerome. The, uh, the vertical dimension is stretched. The rocks are... Uh, it rather impossibly um, high compared with the, with the horizontal distances. Uh, the, uh, the, the viewpoint is um, uh, definitely above the, uh, the shore here. Actually, you can't really see it in this reproduction, but the artist is down here in the lower left-hand corner with his easel uh, paint, painting this, this picture. This, um, uh, this picture on the right is made with um, a stereo camera, which has been flying around and around Mars, a European Space Agency um, a satellite called Mars Express. Uh, the camera um, made and operated um, in, uh, in Germany. Um, and um, uh, the, the, uh, the map of Mars, which this camera has been uh, producing, is, has been overlaid with a, 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 a picture um, uh, uh, made from above by another spacecraft, a color, a color picture. And then the, uh, uh, this picture um, constructed in the computer. And the, it's, the, it's the Valles Marineris again. Uh, the vertical scale of the cliffs here has been stretched. Uh, but the, the ge geological features are real. This flat area here is, um, is the dry bed of a lake which filled up the Valles Mar Marineris, Marineris at one time. Uh, you can see along the join where the lake bed meets the cliff. There's a white line and then a, dark, a darker line above it. That's the beach of the lake and the, um, and the caves that, are, that have been cut by waves in the cliffs underneath. Uh, you can see here a, a massive rock slide in, in the cliffs, which has probably been triggered by, this, um, uh, by the fall of, a, of the meteor which made this crater. Um, and um, uh, there are geological features which are, which, um, which are, um, which skilled planetary scientists can interpret um, out, um, out in, in, in the rest of the picture. I think the fact that the colours um, in this in this picture and this one are so similar must mean that the person that constructed this picture on the right um, had in mind old landscapes, Dutch master landscapes. Um, uh, 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 making something which had an artistic impact as well as a scientific one. Um, and I, I, I don't know whether he actually had a particular vision of the picture of, the, of, a, of an artistic landscape in mind or, or whether it was simply a subconscious association that this is the way landscapes ought, ought to look or one of the ways in which landscapes ought to look. But I'm uh, convinced that 
um, uh, these the planetary scientists who make these pictures are aware of and deliberately go out of their way to make the pictures that they create of these planetary vistas have the impact that they do. I mean, what conclusions can I draw from this? Perhaps I've just led you through a nice garden of, of, um, of interesting things, certainly interesting things for me um, to, uh, uh, to, to talk about. Is there a grand conclusion that one can make? My uh, conclusion is that we're talking he I'm talking here about, uh, about a human endeavor, science and art, which has to be communicated in some way with other people. Artists and scientists are both groups of people are uh, people communicating with other people. An artist with something to say has to select what you want to show, um, isolate it, place it on a canvas, um, colour it to bring out uh, uh, what, what its contents are and uh, somehow rather reveal the story behind the picture, whether it's St. Jerome and the, and the lion having its, having its paw healed or whatever it might be. Space scientists do much the same thing. They have to communicate about what they do um, and they have to communicate convincingly by um, producing data that shows what it is they want to show. So I don't think it's any wonder that the techniques are similar. Uh, this is a, a one culture sort of field. Thank you for listening to me. This is the, the, the book that I, uh, uh, that I wrote that contains these ideas. Thank you. I'm happy to take questions. There are roving mics, of course. Okay. If there was one planet you could visit to take a picture of its landscape, what would it be? I think it has to be Mars. I think Mars, Mars is the um, uh, Mars is the uh, is the planet which is uh, most similar to, but also very different from the Earth. So its landscape has a huge variety of interest. I, there are limitations on time in a 45-minute in a talk, but in the book I go into the, um, uh, the scenery of the polar caps of Mars. It has polar caps uh, with, um, uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, fields of snow, both ordinary snow, the snow that, you, that falls here in the, um, the wintertime, but also carbon dioxide snow. Um, and there are lots of interesting um, phenomena that take place in, the, in these frozen uh, dunes of snow, which create wonderful, um, uh, wonderful structures and features with beautiful colors to them. I'd really like to go and visit that. I don't think I ever will, but I'd like to. Thank you for that. Um, you're points about Titan were very interesting. So we're repeatedly told how similar to Earth it actually is, but I think what you were suggesting there is it's very different. Uh, what is your view of, of Titan as a potential long-term destination? Well, it's both very different and very similar to the Earth, um, and uh, um, scientists regard it because of the methane atmosphere that it has, um, uh, the source of that methane rain, 
um, because of the methane atmosphere that it has, which is very like the um, composition of the Earth's atmosphere before, um, before uh, life developed on the Earth and replaced the methane with oxygen. Um, it's regarded as a, a prebiotic Earth. And the, um, uh, the fog that obscures the surface from the outside and which creates that kind of mistiness, which was in the picture, um, it are, is a fog that is made up of um, uh, chemicals called tholins, which are organic molecules which have developed from, by the impact of sunlight on the methane. And it's one thought about how life developed on the Earth is that this chemical process, a similar chemical process, on the methane atmosphere of the Earth in its early, in its first few hundred thousand, through few hundred million years, and that, that this, uh, the chemicals that developed in this way were the chemicals which came together and, uh, and created life, that created um, algae, you might say, uh, blue-green algae, which created the oxygen and which developed into multicellular organisms and then finally into animals at the peak of the tree like you and me. So um, uh, finding the, the starting point of that process is a very interesting thing to do. And, um, and going to Titan to understand Titan better is a, a very important objective of, uh, of planetary scientists. Uh, the, um, uh, the Huygens spacecraft uh, was a, um, a spacecraft made in Europe uh, by the European Space Agency. Um, it carried um, equipment that was uh, manufactured in the UK. Uh, in fact, the very first thing that touched, site, uh, that touched Titan was a little spike at the bottom of the spacecraft which caught a penetrometer, basically a spike, that, um, uh, that impacted onto the, um, onto the surface of that lake and in order to give some idea of the material strength of the, of the surface and uh, led to the idea that that, that lake surface uh, was a kind of gravel-like consistency. Uh, what that was made at the Open University in Milton Keynes. So uh, British scientists have a particularly, particularly strong interest in, uh, in Titan and in exploring it further. That spacecraft was a kind of ex the first exploration, the first time anybody had gone to the surface. I, nobody knew when, um, when the, before the spacecraft touched down whether it would touch down with a squelch or a thud or, um, or a crunch. Turned out it was a crunch. But I, nobody knew anything about the surface of Titan at all before that moment. Now we know something about it. We have that picture. We have um, um, a number of other measurements that were made by the spacecraft in the 45 minutes that the batteries lasted to operate the spacecraft. Um, now, that doesn't sound like very much, and I guess the space scientists would have, would have always wanted more, but that was the size of batteries that they could, they could take there, and uh, so that was what they got. Now we have a, a lot better idea of what the surface is like. Um, uh, we have a map of the surface. We know not to orbit a spacecraft so that it lands in those lakes, unless we've taken special care that they're not full of, full of liquid methane. Um, uh, we know not to land in the hills. Uh, we know the composition of the atmosphere and, um, and some of the things about the broad composition of the surface. 
so we can tailor the instrumentation the better to do the exploration next time we go. When will next time be? I don't know. I don't know. So I'd like to, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to explore, in answer to your question earlier, I'd like to explore Titan as well. In fact, there are nine planets and must be a hundred satellites. I'd like to go to all of them. Uh, Paul, you showed a picture of the fighting Temeraire, which had a, uh, a very uh, red sky painted by Turner in, uh, I think, 1838 was the date I just looked up. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't cheat. Um, I'd, I had heard that some of Turner's um, paintings had particularly red skies because of the uh, volcanic eruption of Tambora in 1815, but were the skies still as red as he painted them in 1838, do you know? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I rather doubt it because the fallout time for the, um, uh, for the, for the um, uh, volcanic ash, I think, um, is, uh, is shorter than that length of time. Um, and in any case, I guess Turner was an artist and was, could well have taken artistic liberties. So whether that is meant as a, as some, a, docu a documentary um, about anything other than the scuttling of the, of the, of the, of the ship, I, I don't know. I don't know. Good evening. Uh, are there any missions in development to planets we haven't already visited? Planets we haven't already been to? Um, well, um, you'll remember that, um, uh, that uh, the New Horizons spacecraft flew by the planet Pluto. I call it a planet because I was brought up to call it a planet at the, the um, you're not supposed, it's not, not supposed to be a planet anymore, it's a dwarf planet. Um, but anyway, um, it flew by uh, Pluto, um, uh, was it earlier this year? God, time flies. Uh, not very long ago. Um, it only flew by because um, it was not possible uh, with the spacecraft to, um, uh, to carry the equipment to be able to, to land on it, to, for it to go to such a distance. Um, uh, but there are plans to make um, uh, to make landers to uh, to land on uh, on, on Pluto. Uh, there are plans uh, to land spacecraft on um, one of Jupiter's satellites called Europa, which is very extremely interesting. It's um, it's completely covered with ice, water ice, and um, uh, the uh, underneath the ice is. Um, uh, it, theoretical modelling suggests that underneath the ice is an ocean of water, uh, maybe uh, tens of kilometres deep. In fact, that one calculation is that there's, there's more water on Europa uh, than there is on the Earth. Um, and um, uh, the thought of going there and drilling down through that ice, it's a kilometre thick, so it's not going to be easy, um, but uh, drilling down that, uh, through that ice and uh, looking at the composition of the water and what it contains um, uh, is a, a very, very attractive one. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 one of the reasons why it has this uh, water content in it is that um, it, 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 the, uh, the satellite is heated up by geothermal action uh, from the tides that are created on this um, satellite by the, by the planet Jupiter. 
And so you might think there might be some kind of uh, geothermal vents, geothermal activity, warm water down underneath all of that ice, down on, on the solid surface of whatever lies underneath there. Um, and it would be really interesting if uh, life had evolved there um, in, the, in the way that um, it seems to have done near the, um, near the black smokers um, underneath the oceans. Um, uh, because of the technical difficulties of, um, of uh, having a heat source or a lance or a drill or something which penetrates down through that ice, uh, there are many, many ideas about what, a, what, was, what the spacecraft uh, might carry to, to, to carry out those, um, those investigations, but no firm plan and certainly nothing funded. Um, What kind of um, what kind of landscapes are exoplanets outside the solar system likely to have based on the evaluations of planets that we've seen in this solar system? Well, that's a question um, that as yet has no firm answer. Um, the the exoplanets that have been um, uh, that have been uh, discovered and it, it's now running to a list of about two thousand of them. 2,000 other planets orbiting around stars in our galaxy, and probably more than half, three quarters perhaps, of the stars in our galaxy have have stars in orbit around, have uh, planets in orbit around them. So planets are ubiquitous. Um, ones, twos, fives, tens of, of planets per planetary system. Um, but they're very, very distant, and um, often the only two things that we know about about them is that they have a certain mass and sometimes we know that they have um, a, a, a certain size and sometimes we can infer that they have a certain temperature. Um, in one or two cases um, there's some rudimentary information about what atmosphere they've got. As they pass in front of their parent star um, uh, their atmosphere disturbs the light of the star that lies behind them and we can um, uh, make some estimates of what the composition of the atmosphere is and what its density is and so on. So uh, if you think about those planets, um, it, it's like looking at the planets in our own solar system through the wrong end of a telescope. Um, and uh, certainly uh, sort of constructing models of what the landscapes look like is, um, is a very speculative task. So I think I wouldn't be as bold as to say what the landscapes of the planets look like. It's a second-order question. And really, we've only got to the zeroth order um, stage of saying that there are some extrasolar planets. And they have very properties that are very rudimentary, very rudimentarily known. But it's a fascinating topic. And um, now that I don't do research um, anymore, um, having sort of retired from, uh, from research, I get a lot of pleasure out of watching young people at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge do the research. And uh, they, they, they give, uh, they're made to give the results of their search at, at weekly seminars. They have, to give a, they have to present their research for half an hour, um, at, least, at least once in their final year. And a number of them are working on um, 
extrasolar planets. A number of them are developing these ideas. A number of them are going to go on to uh, develop better and better theoretical models of what those planets will be like. And a number of them will go on to uh, construct equipment that can better show us what, what they are, what, they're, what, the, what the planets uh, um, um, are like. It's, um, it's a great pleasure to me to see young people uh, doing things which now I can't do. <laughs> so one final question, I think. Okay, you, back to Europa. Um, there is a remote possibility that there's life there. Yes. So do you have any thoughts on the ethical problem of maybe contaminating the um, well, life on Europa with, with uh, our life forms? Yes, um, that is an ethical question of great import. I mean, it's a, not. It's, I mean, it's a it's a question with two sides to it. One is ethical, and one is practical. Because if you do contaminate the uh, the, the biosphere of a of another planet with your own biology, um, and then if at a later time you do find some biology that you think might be intrinsic, you don't know whether it's biology that you brought or whether it's. Uh, biology which grew there. So if it turns out to be somewhat similar to the biology of, of, of our own biology, it's not telling you anything about extra, extraterrestrial biology. It's not, not no new information in that respect. Um, and um, uh, there is a code of ethics um, which, um, uh, which requires spacecraft which are going to land on the surfaces of, of planets rather than be incinerated in their atmosphere by pl plunging in like a meteor, there is a code of ethics that requires that those, um, that those spacecraft should be sterilised, biologically sterilised. And the, the European Space Agency's facility for sterilising spacecraft is in Milton Keynes. It's at, at the Open University. Um, uh, it's something that the NASA has been doing in its spacecraft exploration. So it is a, a, a serious issue which is very seriously addressed and whenever anybody's making a spacecraft that is going to land somewhere, they have to convince an independent panel that, that they're not going to take anything, take anything now. Uh, this um, monitor is flashing times up with exclamation marks, so I'm afraid that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much.